Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. I don't know if uh, you have seen a particular movie. It is about a lion, and throughout the course of the film, he becomes king. Title's a little different than that, but it's close. But the Lion King tells a story of the king's ascent. From the moment that the movie begins, Simba is branded as their heir to the throne. He's actually designated to the office at the start of the movie by the baboon Rafiki, who lifts up Simba as a little cub before the animals of the kingdom, and they all bow down and worship him. He is the future king. The rest of the story describes Simba's, uh, his exile, and then his homecoming back to Pride Rock. When Simba returns to Pride Rock, he has to battle for the throne, which has been seized by his uncle Scar. And aren't relatives the worst at times? Um, anyway, Simba conquers Scar and all of his hyenas that have joined his side of the battle. But even though he's been designated, appointed, and even conquered the forces of darkness, his work still remains incomplete at that point. At the end of the movie, uh, immediately after the battle, there's, there's something that kind of, I think we tend to miss in the film because we already feel like the climax has happened and everything's good. But, but after that, immediately after the battle, an important scene occurs that's often overlooked. The camera suddenly shifts to Rafiki, back to Rafiki, kind of bringing the story full circle. And Rafiki takes his staff and points Simba to Pride Rock. An old era has ended and a new one is about to begin because in order for Simba to claim his kingdom and be installed as king, he must ascend Pride Rock, the rightful place of the ruler to ritually demonstrate that he has conquered everything. Simba dramatically then ascends the rock and he roars at the end of the movie. When he does, all the other lions acknowledge his victory, dominion, and his authority. And, and though, though Simba has been designated as king from the start of the movie, though he conquers in battle, he's still not installed as king until he ascends Pride Rock. And that's maybe kind of a different description of the Lion King that maybe you're used to, but it's a very accurate description of the Lion King. And what's interesting about that is that really the plot of the Lion King is reflective of the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's pretty amazing. If, I would even go as far, after thinking this through a little bit, if you're trying to explain what Jesus did to a person who doesn't know anything about Christianity and they watch Disney movies, this might be a good way to kind of give them a, an opportunity, a container to understand what Jesus did. 
Because, because you see, in a nonfiction way, the Bible tells a very similar story. Jesus is designated as king in the beginning. And at the beginning of the gospels, he's designated as king. And, and then Jesus has to conquer, he has to be installed, enthroned, and recognized as king in the beginning of Acts. And, and, and the question is why? Because why does Jesus need to be installed as king if Jesus really is God and, and, and he already has all that authority, which is all true, but, but what's interesting is that the reason this has to happen, the reason the Bible tells this story is that, is that God plays by his own rules set by his character unlike politicians and parents and you and I. <laughs> but God plays by his own rules set by his character that are consistent with his, his character and his righteousness and his justice and his holiness. And, and it's interesting because the very reason God is good is the same reason we often struggle with his decisions. Because why doesn't God just wipe everything out and fix everything? Well, because he's true to his own character. You see, sin and rebellion has consequences. And so when we sin, when we rebelled against God, that had consequences. And so humanity, after sin and the fall, rightly had a legal ownership of the enemy kingdom. Slaves to sin and owned by the enemies of God. That's what sin did. And so God, the only thing that will change that other than eternal punishment, which we are all on the path of unless we experience the forgiveness and restoration and salvation of Jesus, the only way to avoid that is a perfect, holy, pure sacrifice. And no one can do that except for Jesus Christ. And, and so there was only one way for humankind to be redeemed, and we tend to focus on the cross and the resurrection, which really defines Jesus as Savior, and that really is about our benefit. And we tend to miss the equally significant part, the ascension of Jesus Christ, which is actually all about Jesus as King. And that really is about our responsibility that we have to Jesus the King. And, and it's interesting, I, my question is, because I had to kind of wrestle with this, because I felt a, pretty bad about myself, because I thought, have I ever taught on the ascension of Jesus Christ? Question for you is, is in all of your time in church, have you ever heard a sermon preached on the ascension? We kind of get to Easter, and then we're like, we're done, and we start over. But there's this thing that happened 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that happened in the first chapter of Acts, his ascension, and given it's only talked about in this one passage, it's narrated in this one passage, all of scripture points to and talks about the ascension of Jesus Christ. And it is equally part of his birth, his death, his resurrection, and the ascension. Those are all a packaged thing that reveals Jesus as who he is. And so, and so uh, 
this morning, my hope and prayer is that you walk out of here as you see what Jesus did a thousand times more confident than you did when you walked in here. Because I think this makes a world of difference understanding what Jesus did after he raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven. Because that is Jesus as king. And so the first thing, there's, there's certain expectations that we see even biblically for a king. Uh, there are expectations of kings, and even, especially in Israel, but even so in kings all over, in rulers. We, we know from scripture that God places people in positions of authority, that no one comes to authority without God's express involvement in some form, because God is sovereign over all things. And in Israel in particular, there were four requirements, expectations for the kings of Israel. And they were applied to the kings of other nations as well because God still punished those kings. So the first expectation was that the king would be chosen by God. Chosen by God, not chosen by man. Second thing was the king was called to rule in justice and in righteousness. That was their job description. You rule in righteousness and justice. And the way they did, number three, was that they were to promote the Torah, the law of God, the first five books of our Bible. In fact, the king was required to write a copy of the Torah and then read it every day of the king's life. And that would keep him in a direction of justice and righteousness. And then fourthly, the king was called by God to, to bless the nation and the world through wisdom, justice, and authority received by God. That's what a king was expected to do. And, and by the way, not one single king in all of human history, not one single ruler or national leader has actually lived up to those requirements. Not one has successfully lived up to those. There's been some that are better than others, but not one has actually fully lived up to those expectations. Now, here's what's interesting. We talk about Jesus as king, and we, we see Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords, and, and we talk about this ascension in, in Acts that Acts, Luke talks about in Acts chapter one. Here's the thing. Jesus, the Bible has a huge commentary about Jesus becoming king. And it starts in the Old Testament, and we see this thread. So I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna jump through fairly quickly kind of a, a roadmap through the Bible of Jesus as king and this idea of, of his ascension. In Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, it says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, expectation of a king, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In Daniel chapter seven, in verse 13, Daniel recounts, he says, I saw the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom 
one that shall not be destroyed. In Mark chapter 14, verse 62, when asked by the chief priest if he is the Messiah, Jesus responds, he says, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That was Jesus going back to Daniel 7. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus responds to Pilate when Pilate says, are you a king? And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. We see in Paul, Ephesians chapter one, verse 20, it says, in talking about what God did in Christ, he says that, that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Not only in the, the Pauline letters, but also in the general epistles in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, it says, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, purification for sins, savior, and sat down at the right hand of God, king, on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is a more excellent than theirs. And we see Revelation chapter one, verse five says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. And then finally, in, in Revelation 17, four, it says, they, the enemies of God, will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. That was a super fast run through the Bible on the kingly passages about Jesus and the passages predicting and describing and looking back to Jesus' ascension after he was raised from the dead. And so what we see is Jesus not, is not only the promised king, but he is the powerful, eternal king. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter one. And I'm gonna read verses six through 11. This is the narrative that, that, that Luke writes about the experiences that the, the, the disciples and others had when Jesus ascended into heaven. And so in verse six of chapter one in Acts, it says this. So when they had come together, they asked him, asking Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
They're recognizing Jesus as king and recognizing that they are wondering when Israel will be restored and that he'll restore the kingdom to Israel because Jesus has talked quite a bit about the kingdom. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so we've got this passage in the beginning of Acts that is really easy to kind of hit, read, and move on into the really exciting birth of the early church, right? And we jump by that and, and we just kind of don't spend much time in this moment because really it's the only description of Jesus' ascension. But as we saw, there are, the whole Bible talks about this moment. And so, and so what, what we have is, is, is the disciples come to Jesus. This is in that 40-day period after Jesus' resurrection before he ascended into heaven. And, and so his disciples say to him, uh, Jesus, when, when is the kingdom going to be restored to Israel? Now? Is it going to happen now? Is this a thing that's happening right now? Now that you've, you're back, you rose from the dead, you conquered death, is it now? And Jesus redirects their focus. You see, discipleship is not about knowing dates and times. It is about being ready. Discipleship isn't about knowing the dates and times. It's about being ready. We have to be ready. We can't be caught off guard because we don't know the date or the time or the season. Jesus says, no, 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 don't worry about when. I just need you to be in a perpetual state of readiness. What he does say is say, what you will do, and here's how you stay ready, is you will receive the Holy Spirit. So receive the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't struggle with the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Receive the Holy Spirit. So, so receive the Holy Spirit. And the second part is be my witnesses everywhere. To the ends of the earth, including to the end of the block. That's how we are ready. That's how we remain in that perpetual state of readiness is that we receive the Holy Spirit. We are receptive to the Holy Spirit and we are the witnesses of King Jesus going out and being Jesus and preaching Jesus and calling people to Jesus from their slavery to sin. And so he says, you know, go out and find people from every single place on earth and show them Jesus, Savior and King. And then it's interesting because, because you've, got, you've got in this text, you've got Jesus as he's talking to them, all of a sudden it says he starts to float and he disappears in the clouds, which has to be a, like a little bit of an unnerving moment that somebody's just, you're in a conversation with somebody and they just start to float and you're kind of like, huh, like that doesn't happen all the time. And so, and so they're, they're looking up into the clouds. They're looking up at the sky. And, and, and here's what's interesting. 
In, in, verse, in, in, in the verses where, where you see Jesus ascending, Acts chapter one is seeing a departure, right? Jesus is leaving this earth. But Daniel 7 speaks of this event from heaven's perspective, and it's an arrival. You see, in, in, in Daniel 7, what, what we read is it says, I saw with the clouds of heaven there came, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and his dominion is everlasting. So in Daniel 7, it's the view from heaven of this moment in Acts, and it is an arrival to, to a throne. Whereas the disciples, and Luke, as he writes the narrative in Acts, he sees it as a departure, because he's looking from the underside. So we need to recognize that the ascension of Jesus is not just a departure, but it is an arrival. And, 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 so, and so here, here, here the, tr the ascension was actually the triumph of King Jesus. Jesus did have authority on earth. We know that because he still, he forgave sins, which only God can do. And he overpowered demons. But it was at his ascension where he received power over the whole world and the cosmos and installed, and he was installed as king over heaven and earth. And again, that almost sounds weird because you think, whoa, whoa, whoa Jesus, but, but, but how does that work? Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter two. He says, Jesus, though God, did not find equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, becoming humble and becoming obedient to death, death on a cross, and then what does it say? It says, and then God exalted him above every being, every name, and that the, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul said that in Philippians 2, like many of us growing up in church have that memorized. And, 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 so, and so here, the ascension was not only the, the, the climax of Jesus' earthly life, but it was a proclamation of a brand new beginning for everyone. Some benefited from that new beginning over others. But it was a message to the universe, to every created being that Jesus is on the throne. And so, and so what, what exactly does it mean when, when, when we see all of these scriptures talking about Jesus ascending to the right hand of God, having power over authorities and dominions and, and all of those things? Uh, what, what is it, that that, what is it that, that that means? Well, first of all, what the ascension means, what Jesus becoming king, being recognized as king, it, it means that Jesus has conquered all his enemies, Period. The biblical authors always view human action under the influence of spiritual beings. In fact, when we, when we think about the, the story that we, many of us are familiar with of, of, of the devil saying, basically before he was the devil, saying, I will ascend 
to the highest place. I will ascend to where God is and, and he wants to be greater than God and then we know that was his sin and it says, I will ascend. See, ascension is critical to authority and power and ruling. When you think about it, that's true in everywhere in life. What, 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 what do you do when you become, when you get paid more and you get uh, a, a bigger title and more power at work? You are climbing the ladder. You are ascending. What is, what, is it, what, what is it when you know you've made it living in New York City where you have the penthouse view? You've ascended. And so the devil in the Old Testament, what we read is that he wanted to ascend to, to, to higher than God. He wanted to be king of the cosmos. And so what did God do? He cast him out. And actually what happened was he descended. Again, it correlates with, with, with what we experience in life. Because when, when you lose power or authority, you descend, don't you? And, 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 so, and so not only that, we see that in the case of the devil, but we also see that in the case of mankind. When you go back to the Tower of Babel, what was it that those human beings wanted? They wanted to build a tower so they could ascend. What did God do? He crushed the whole thing and he caused them to descend. And, and, so, and so there's this thing about ascension and, and, and kingship. And, and so, and so while the, the thing about this, as I said earlier, is that God plays by the rules of his character because God said in the beginning that if we ate of this tree, we would surely die. And Adam and Eve sinned, they disobeyed God. They rebelled, we rebel, and our futures were set, that we were separated from God for eternity, and we no longer were legally gods because of our sin and rebellion. And there's only one way to deal with the consequences of that. If Jesus did not raise and ascend, the whole world would still be under the power of the devil because of sin. And so at the Messiah's ascent, he was installed as Lord of all. He took what the devil and all the spiritual beings and all the kings of human history always wanted, and they thought they finally achieved because they killed Jesus. But it didn't work out for them that way. I just, if you wanna humor me for a second, this isn't exactly the words of Jesus, but I picture Jesus on the cross and, and like the disciples and, and Mary and the, the women who were there at the cross looking and seeing Jesus on the cross, like there's no way this is how this ends. This is not the way, this is not the path. And I just imagine Jesus looking down from the cross and saying, we're in the end game now. There was no other way. I just, I just, I just think that's what, in my, in my mind, in my heart, that's what happened. Um, but, but the thing is, the end game, that it was not just the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it was his ascension to heaven and being enthroned, the realization and the recognition of his kingship that he had all along. So in the ascension, the throne is now occupied and the kingdom of God is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. So not only did Jesus conquer his enemies in that, but he also was made ruler over the church and over the world. We see, we see that, that statement being made throughout scripture 
and, and especially in, in, in Paul's letters. In Acts chapter one, Luke begins with this emphasis on the continued work of the risen Jesus. It says in Acts 1.1, it says, all that Jesus began to do and teach. He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you all that th the things that Jesus began to do and teach and how that carried on after his ascension. And so as king of heaven, Jesus leads and guides his people on earth through those that serve him. Jesus' authority had been given to his servants on earth. We see that in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. And so kind of to, to catch maybe a better understanding of uh, Jesus' kingly work on earth and in heaven, um, it's to kind of like see it, it's that on earth, Jesus was designated as king. In heaven, he was installed as king. On earth, Jesus conquered the forces of darkness. In heaven, he was enthroned above all the spiritual beings. On earth, Jesus laid the foundation of his church. In heaven, he became head over the world and the church. That's, that's kind of how Jesus' kingly work, and what's really cool, we don't, we're not gonna get into this now, but, but you look at Jesus' kingly work, he also had a priestly work, and he also had a prophetic work, which those are all pretty incredible as well, and they have an earthly dimension and a heavenly dimension. But I think what's interesting in the narrative in, in Acts, you've got Jesus ascending into heaven, departing and arriving, and then these, these angelic beings show up and they look at all of these people because everyone's just kind of staring up in the sky at that point. And these angelic beings say, say, why are you looking up in the sky? Why are you gazing in the sky? He says, Jesus has told you what to do, so don't worry about him because he will return just as he left. John Stott, <clears throat> pastor and author, says this. He says, there is something fundamentally anomalous about their gazing up into the sky when they had been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. And I kind of wonder how often we as Jesus followers are stargazers rather than witnesses. We're not actually carrying out the commission Jesus sent us on. We're not actually joining him in his mission, but we're just kind of gazing off into the distance, wondering when we will have a better life. And, and so as we see what happened in the book of Acts and we see the, the, the theology of scripture we see what, what Jesus is and who he is and what he did and, and how all of that happened. What does it mean for us as citizens of the kingdom of God? What does it mean for you and I as citizens of this kingdom? I think there's three things that are really important to recognize. Number one is this. Since the church is seated with Christ and under one ruler, the primary attribute of the church is unity, period. If, in fact, we are all loyal to one king, that means we have one agenda. That means we then will put our differences aside 
and follow him. You see, this church, this church is an army of one. If one king sits on the throne, which he does, then he is all people's peace, no matter what gender, race, or socioeconomic status, he has broken down the wall of hostility. Why then is there still hostility between believers? Because we really don't recognize Jesus as king. That is the, that ha, that is the reason. We love Jesus as savior but Jesus as Savior saves me so that I can do what I want. But Jesus as King means I have to do what he says. You see, this is, this is how we know that we really don't pursue Jesus as King. I was in the United Methodist Church right now. There's, there's gonna be a huge battle for the United Methodist Church and the sides are described this way. It's gonna be the conservatives against the liberals. In the kingdom of God, there is no liberal or conservative. There is only King Jesus and only loyalty to him, period. So we need to stop defining ourselves in that way because it doesn't exist in the kingdom of God. Because if we truly are about King Jesus, then we are none of that. We obey Jesus and Jesus alone. See, I think part of the problem is as we engage scripture, we love our yeah buts. So, you know, maybe it was like when I said the church's primary attribute is unity, maybe in some of your mind you were like, yeah, but what about holiness? Yeah, but what about this? And when we do that, I think, I think we tend to do that because we don't wanna actually say, no, scripture's wrong, but we wanna say, yeah, but that's not as important as this. Love one another, yeah, but. And so we, we throw these yeah buts around all the time so that we feel good about ourselves by not denying scripture, but we do make an out for ourselves to say that's not as important as what I think this is. And that's not obedience and that's actually not loyalty to the king. See, harmony and unity are the reality and the goal now that Jesus has assumed the throne. You think about it, the one thing Jesus prayed for you that is recorded, literally prayed for us in John 17 was, Father, that they may be one as you and I are one. That's the only thing he prayed for us that is recorded, for us. And, and, and so the church is to come together under his reign of love and spread that love to others. And even in that statement, there's gotta be some yeah buts going on, aren't there? <laughs> yeah, but what, what about? See, the universal presence and the kingship of Christ reassembles the church under his banner of love. Second thing that, 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 that this does for us is that the church not only unites as an army around King Jesus, but it goes out confidently in battle. 
But the problem is that, that we often fight the battles we want to fight rather than the battles Jesus calls us to fight because we really struggle with kingship. You see, we are fighting defeated foes that Jesus already conquered and we are rescuing other human beings from their slavery to sin and the legal right that those enemies have to those human beings because of sin and rebellion. But instead, we seem to struggle with fighting the human beings, even those in our own kingdom, and are blind to the foes we are called to fight. Because it's just easier to fight people than things that we don't quite have our heads wrapped around. It's interesting. We, we all know that the, the spiritual armor, put on the armor of God. Here's what's interesting. The armor of God is spiritual, it's supernatural. Why would you have, why would God equip us with something supernatural to fight flesh? Think about that for a second. It doesn't make any sense. And Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and dominions and authorities. See, our battle is against a defeated foe to rescue the prisoner's wars. Because other human beings are those who are in prison, slaves to sin, which Jesus has called us to, in the power of the received Holy Spirit, go and be Jesus' witnesses to them. Third thing that this does for us is this, and this is the hard one, as if the other ones weren't. Christ's rule is manifest in a suffering and waiting people. Christ's rule is manifest in a suffering and waiting people. You see, Christ's rule, we, in so many ways, we've gotten this wrong. Christ's rule does not mean the church is called to go out and rule the world. What Paul says in Colossians chapter three, he says, he says if then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, talking about the ascension. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that, you are, that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear in glory. In other words, Jesus' kingly reign is happening right now, but we have a space and time where we can pursue the kingdom and, and freeing slaves to be part of the kingdom. And so it's not our time to rule yet, but we are hidden with Christ, and when Christ appears to set all things right, then we get to rule with Christ. When we try to rule the world now, we are running ahead of Jesus's plan because he hasn't said it's time to rule yet. Right now is the time to rescue. See, we're not promised to live a happy and peaceful life or have rich possessions and be safe from all harm. You see, the church, you and I, we patiently pass through this life content with only one thing, 
Only one thing is necessary, that our king will never leave us destitute, but will provide for our needs until our warfare ended, we are called to triumph with him. That's what Jesus as king means for us. So church, I believe that our king has been trying to get our attention. It's time that we stop acting like citizens of a fallen kingdom, frightened by the next thing coming around the corner, trying to get back a kingdom that we prefer. Our citizenship is not anchored in this world, and our king is Jesus. He has come, he has died for us, he has been raised from the dead, and he has ascended to the right hand of God, and his reign is happening now. It's time we took seriously our king's call to unify under his banner and accomplish his mission. We can no longer look at others and see them as the enemy because they are prisoners of war and we are the ones that deny ourselves and carry the cross of Jesus to bring them to freedom even at the cost of our lives, let alone our preferences, politics, and passions. Cross point, we believe that Jesus not only lives, but that he reigns. And that one day he will return. Our king has freed us from the toxic obsession with the present and pushes us toward the consummation of history that has already begun. When King Jesus returns, he will destroy all of his enemies forever and restore his people. But right now we are living in the time that our king has left us for repentance and belief in the gospel. That's what defines our time. And as Paul writes, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the question for us is what are we waiting for? Jesus has already done it. He's already died and risen and ascended and is on the throne at the right hand of God. Are you willing to lose your life for King Jesus or is rescue and release more your style? Who will stand against the enemy and love the lost at the side of their king? Are you, am I, willing to take that stand? That is what our king is calling us to do. And it's time that we listened. And it's time that we obeyed. Because of what Jesus did, we can't be stopped. So what are we waiting for? Father, I come before you this morning. And God, I thank you for how clear you are about what you've done and who we are. Father, I pray that we would, that we would recognize Jesus as king 
not of just our lives, but the world around us. That, that, that we would, would understand and live out the ramifications of, of the finished work of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that, 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 that we would be inspired and motivated to let go of all the things that we hang on to and that we would be unified, loyal to King Jesus. If Jesus isn't enough for our unity, then God, there is no hope. God, I, I pray that, that we would be bold and have great courage and confidence in the mission that you've called us to stand against the enemy and rescue the lost. God, that, that we would be patient in our suffering and in our waiting, knowing that there will come a day that we will be revealed with you in all of your glory and power and that we are and will be a part of a kingdom that will never, ever end. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. 